Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Andrew F. Tuck, Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Tuck is the author of a recent research paper entitled Fairness Opinions and SPAC Reform. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. Professor, your research paper examines third-party fairness opinions used in DSPAC transactions from 2019 to 2023. So can we begin by explaining to our listeners what is a DSPAC transaction, what is a third-party fairness opinion, and why has it become more common for parties involved in a DSPAC transaction to seek fairness opinions? Thanks, Jeff. So first, a DSPAC is also known as a SPAC merger. It's a merger involving a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, which is a shell company that's formed and then raises cash to buy a private operating company. So a SPAC forms, it becomes a public company and raises money by doing an IPO. And when it merges with a private operating company in a DSPAC or SPAC merger, the resulting company the post-merger company is itself a public company. So a DSPAC performs the functions of a traditional IPO from the perspective of the private operating company. It results in that company, a company like Lucid, the electric car maker, going from private to public by merging with the SPAC, a public company. So that's a DSPAC. A third-party fairness opinion is simply a letter provided by an investment bank or financial advisor. They're often those terms are often used interchangeably. And that letter attests to the fairness of a merger, such as a SPAC merger. These letters are common in public mergers and they're increasingly common in SPAC mergers. It is, this letter is given to the board of the buyer or seller and it basically says that the transaction consideration is fair to a particular party or group. And then finally, why have third-party fairness opinions become more common for parties involved in, in DSPACs? This is because of recent decisions of the Delaware Court of Chancery and also reforms that are being proposed by the SEC. This emerging regulatory framework effectively requires SPAC mergers to be fair to public SPAC shareholders. So these shareholders, public SPAC shareholders, are shareholders in the SPAC at the time of the merger and in the lead up to the merger other than the SPAC sponsor and the directors of the SPAC. So the sponsor forms the SPAC and selects directors, selects the SPAC board, and the compensation structure for SPAC sponsors is particularly important. Under the conventional SPAC structure, the sponsor gets a 20% stake in the SPAC if the merger goes ahead, and it pays just a few cents per share for those shares, while public shareholders are paying at least $10 per share. So there's clearly heavy dilution caused by that. So when a SPAC merges, public shareholders actually have an important protection. They have a choice to make. They can either redeem their shares and get their $10 back plus interest or remain invested in the SPAC and thereby become a shareholder in the post-merger company, become a shareholder in the company after it's merged with a private operating company. So this redemption right is clearly very powerful. It's a powerful protection. But Delaware courts are concerned that SPAC sponsors and directors have conflicted incentives at the time of the merger. This flows from their remuneration structure. And the SEC is also concerned that SPAC participants 
face lighter regulation than they would in a traditional IPO, which is an analogous transaction. So Delaware courts are effectively requiring SPAC sponsors and fiduciaries to establish that SPAC mergers follow a fair process and that the price is fair to public shareholders. And the SEC has proposed requiring SPACs to actually state whether the SPAC merger is fair to public shareholders. And so boards and sponsors clearly want some support for their opinions as to fairness. And the obvious place to look is the third-party fairness opinions. There's no requirement that they get third-party fairness opinions, but most of the major law firms in the wake of the SEC proposal and these Delaware decisions are advising SPACs to seriously consider getting fairness opinions at the time of the SPAC merger. So, Professor, who are these firms that provide fairness opinions for DSPAC transactions? What's the range of fees these firms charge for the opinions? And what's your assessment of the quality of those opinions? Well, in theory, they could be the same range of firms as those that give fairness opinions in public mergers, the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and so on. But in SPAC mergers, they're actually almost all significantly smaller, less visible financial advisors. So in my research, I studied all SPAC fairness opinions over the past four years. The fees range from about $37,000 at the low end up to $1.5 million, which is more in line with fees charged in public M&A deals. Average fees were of the order of $500,000. Median fees were slightly lower. As for their quality, it's low, remarkably low for the reasons I'll explain. Even though many of these deals are valued in the billions of dollars, they're serious mergers in which the major investment banks are involved. They're not involved in giving fairness opinions. That task is often left for a smaller financial advisor. But the major banks are often involved in these SPAC mergers, acting as M&A advisors on the merger, acting as placement agents, but choosing not to give fairness opinions. Let me address just one issue that some listeners may have from the outset, and that is that they may think that fairness opinions are obviously useless from the start. The empirical evidence actually suggests that fairness opinions do have informational content. That's clear with sell-side opinions, and it can be clear with buy-side opinions as well, although the evidence there is a little more mixed. But more to the point, Delaware courts do take fairness opinions seriously. They review them carefully before they give them credit. And so SPAC sponsors and boards have strong incentives to get credible fairness opinions. But a low-quality market has emerged. What fairness opinions ought to do, I argue in the paper, is that they should assess the value of the post-merger company. This means that they need to take into account the dilution that's inherent in the SPAC due to various factors, including the discounted shares that these sponsors receive. And they ought to do this because ultimately what they're looking at in determining fairness to public shareholders is whether the value of the deal, in other words, whether the value of the post-merger company is going to be at least worth $10. If it's not, then the deal's not fair to public shareholders. They'd be far better off exercising their redemption right. However, looking at the evidence, SPAC boards obtained fairness opinions and the financially small financial advisors gave opinions which failed to address the position of public shareholders. So generally, these opinions copied from the public M&A playbook for fairness opinions, and they address fairness to the party either paying or receiving consideration. And here, because it's the SPAC that's getting the fairness opinion, even though it ought to be getting a fairness opinion, attesting to fairness to public shareholders, what these opinions do is, by and large, they attest to fairness to the SPAC itself. 
And we know that's beside the point because the interests of public shareholders diverge widely often from those of the SPAC itself. So these opinions are generally unresponsive to fiduciary concerns. They relied on assumptions that often yielded implausible valuations, and SPACs nevertheless disclosed these opinions to public shareholders, offering them false comfort as they decided whether to exercise their redemption rights. The vast bulk of these opinions, as I mentioned over the past four years, simply failed to address fairness to public shareholders. They addressed fairness to the SPAC. They also generally assumed for convenience that the SPAC shares were worth $10, which is usually inflated. We know that at the time of the SPAC merger, the value of the SPAC shares are worth on a cash basis significantly less than $10 due to the effects of dilution. And that has all sorts of knock-on effects which undermine the value of these opinions, which I set out in more detail in the paper. There are some opinions that do in fact purport to address fairness to public shareholders. So this ought to be encouraging. But with one exception, these opinions are baseless. So their analyses do not support their conclusions. Despite their conclusions, they do not address the position of public shareholders. And there are some other opinions that are simply ambiguous as to their conclusions. They don't say to whom the transaction consideration is fair, or they're clearly mistaken in one case saying that the deal is fair to the target when it's the SPAC that's paying for the opinion and the SPAC shareholders to whom fairness matters. There's one outlier, as I mentioned, among these opinions, and it's the sole opinion given by a major investment bank. And it purports to address fairness to public shareholders, and it actually provides a plausible basis for that conclusion. And it's the fairness opinion given in the Polestar DSPAC. That's a $20 billion deal in which the electric car maker Polestar merged with the SPAC becoming public. But that's the outlier. Professor, your paper critiques the March 2022 Securities and Exchange Commission proposal to enhance disclosure and investor protection in initial public offerings by special purpose acquisition companies. So if you were chairman of the SEC, what would be the key investor protection provisions that you would include in the SEC's final rule on SPACs? Thanks, Jeff. Well, I'm pleased I'm not chair of the SEC because whatever I would do, I would know that half the world would criticize me for it. Let me say, though, that I think the proposed reforms are a good faith effort to buttress protections for investors, and they largely track concerns raised by scholars in the field, so they do have backing. Generally, as you know, and as your listeners know, SPAC mergers have emerged as an alternative to traditional IPOs, but the major players in SPAC mergers have weaker incentives to fully and accurately inform public investors than their counterparts do in traditional IPOs the regulatory framework is weaker. So reforms are needed. There are enormous technical challenges involved in doing this because of the structural differences between the transactions. It's very tough to translate the regulatory framework for an IPO, a traditional IPO, into the merger setting. These are distinct transactions, even though they're functional substitutes. So reform is needed, but it's tough achieving it. But I think it's clear that we want gatekeepers, and most particularly investment banks to have stronger incentives to ensure reliable disclosures to investors and so vet SPAC mergers more carefully than they have incentives to do at the moment that will more closely align the SPAC merger setting with the traditional IPO setting. So I'd favour a form of liability for investment banking advisors, 
but I would not hold them liable for projections. That's also for, for, for financial projections. That's also in line with the approach in IPOs. I'd remove the protection that SPACs may get from safe harbors when they disclose financial projections. I'd ensure more standardized disclosures of the type that the SEC is requiring. I'm also broadly in favor of the requirement for SPACs to state whether the SPAC merger is fair or not. Professor, what do you see as the future of special purpose acquisition companies and under what circumstances, if any, should investors view SPACs as an acceptable alternative to the traditional initial public offering? Well, Jeff, these are, these are tough questions, but important ones. I think the upshot of the emerging regulatory framework is that SPAC terms are going to need to change. Establishing fairness to public shareholders will be tough for SPACs and sponsors and SPAC boards unless there is a reasonable likelihood that the post-merger company will be worth more than $10. That's the redemption value to public shareholders. So for that, the remuneration structure, as I mentioned, is going to need to change. And if there need to be third-party fairness opinions or there's greater chance of liability for gatekeepers, then I think there really does need to be a plausible basis for claiming that a DSPAC is worth at least $10 per share to public shareholders. can't simply be said if there's greater liability resting on those sorts of claims. I think from a private company's perspective, SPAC mergers are a viable alternative to traditional IPOs. Targets have been able to negotiate good deals with sponsors, although in doing so, they've shifted the loss, at least historically, they've shifted the loss onto public shareholders. That's been bad for public shareholders, but it's been good for targets. And so SPAC mergers have become a viable alternative to the traditional IPO. And I would expect that there would be continued interest in SPAC mergers from targets. From public investors' perspective, if they want to invest at the ground level at the very outset in a company, then a SPAC merger offers that chance, but a traditional IPO doesn't in practice because of the difficulty of buying at the time of the primary offering. Financially, public investors would have been better off investing in traditional IPOs than remaining invested in SPAC mergers. But as for the future, what investors need to be looking for to answer your question is changed terms, so terms different from those that have existed historically in SPAC mergers. They need to understand the dilution that's inherent in the deal. They need to form a view as to the value of the post-merger company. And I think the newly proposed disclosure regime should help them to do that. And I think properly formulated fairness opinions should aid in the process as well. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, Andrew F. Tuck, Professor of Law at Washington University in St. Louis. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, 
please visit our website at www.cii.org.